You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Right, good morning, everyone. My name's Jonathan. I'm the pastor here at the church. And where I grew up in Diamond Creek, uh, the, the place is just littered with gold mines, gold mine shafts, uh, which was a lot of fun as kids. Um, you know, taking our lives into our hands, going down into old mine shafts. The Diamond Creek was founded as a gold mining town. And so you've got these monuments all over the town to kind of monuments to the past, um, to its heritage, but also monuments to the fact that gold is a depletable resource. There's only so much you can get out of the ground, Um, which is not the case when it comes to Romans chapter 8, because we have been now up until today, six weeks mining the gospel gold out of Romans chapter 8, and we're just not, we haven't even touched the surface. Um, If you want to, you can spend the rest of your days mining gold from Romans 8. It is a, a bottomless pit of gospel gold, and there's much more to get. So let's get into it. Uh, We're going to start at the very first part of of, uh, chapter 8, verse 31. Paul says, What then are we to say about these things? Stop there. These things. What do we say about these things? What are the these things? Um, Probably everything he said from chapter uh, chapter 5 to chapter 8. From, from 5 through to 8, which was the alternative series I was thinking of doing, so um, maybe some other time, but uh, we wouldn't be reading every week 5 through to 8, uh, but um, it wouldn't be a bad use of our time. Anyway, 5 to 8 is uh, Paul's real argument that he builds for the security, the assurance we can have as God's children, as his people. And so this, this argument's been building five, six, seven, eight, and now he gets to the point where he says, all right, now taking all of that, what can we say? What are we going to say about these things? At the very least, he's referring to the chapter that we've been looking at in chapter eight. But even if it's just chapter eight, what, what can we say to all of these things? Let me just do a real, real brief recap for you from what we've seen so far in chapter 8. So week 1, we looked at verse 1 to 4, no condemnation in Christ. Key verse here, I'm going to try my best to take a key verse from each week. The key verse is verse 1, where he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He's going to pick that up again, as you just heard in our passage this morning. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. In week 2, We looked at verse 5 to 11, the mindset of the Spirit. And the key verse here is going to come up right now. Verse 5, he says, For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. The contrast there is not between this world and heaven or my, my body and my spirit. The contrast is between who I am apart from Christ, that's what he means by the flesh, who I am as an unredeemed person versus who God himself is. The mindset of the flesh is consumed with, with, with broken, sinful, worldly, fleshly things. The mindset of the spirit is set on 
God's mind, the way God sees the world, the way God loves the world. And so the contrast there between those of us who are yet apart from Christ and those who have been enfolded into his family, given his spirit, given his mindset. All right, next. We saw in week three, verse 12 to 17, adopted by God. Key verse here, just a beautiful, beautiful summary of what it means for us to be his children. He says, you do not receive a spirit of slavery, verse 15, to fall back into fear. Instead, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. If you're a Christian, then you're an adopted child. You're an orphan. You are completely helpless, without hope. And God himself scooped you up and enfolded you, invited you, enveloped you into his family so that now you can call him Daddy, Abba. Father. All right, next up, we looked at verse 18 to 23, groaning for how it's meant to be. Key verse here, verse 22, he says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. This explains everything. This is what, one of the reasons I love Christianity, is just it makes sense of the world. Uh, What's the famous quote by C.S. Lewis? I believe in Christianity in the same way that I believe the sun has risen, not just because I see it, but because by it I see everything. So the gospel, the, 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 the Christian faith, the Christian worldview makes sense of the world. And the way that Paul articulates that kind of in picture language in this passage is that the the world itself, not just us who are conscious of things not being right, but the very creation itself is groaning. It's groaning under the weight of sin. It's groaning for the day that it will be redeemed. So the whole gospel um, storyline is this going from God's perfect creation in the beginning through all of this groaning and, and futility and sin and brokenness through to his recreation of creation as it was meant to be. In fact, better than it was. Completely fulfilled, recreated, restored. And Paul says, it's not just us who are hoping for that. Creation itself is groaning for that day to come. This gives us very good grounds for caring about the creation that we live in. It's not, we're not just hoping that one day we'll get off to heaven somewhere and everything will be okay, but the whole creation is destined to be renewed. And we ought to be working for that in the meantime, even as we groan. All right, next up. We looked at verse 24 to 27, the now and not yet. In the midst of our groaning, we don't just, um, we, we, we don't descend into nihilism, into despair, because we have a hope that God is going to redeem the world. We, we, we don't just attach our hope to some kind of distant, vague, ethereal future, but God's new creation has come into being already it came in the person and work of Jesus he inaugurated the kingdom of God it is now but it's not yet it's here among us it's growing we can feel its influence we can see evidences of it but it's not yet fulfilled and so 
this tension that we live in, a shorthand way of explaining it, is that, is that we have God's kingdom now, but not yet. We have evidence and good reason to hope for the future, but we won't, yet, we won't see its fulfillment until Jesus comes again and makes all things new. All right, moving on uh, <clears throat> to uh, verse in, in, in week six. We looked at verse 28 to 30. This is last week from groans to glory. Some of you were groaning because the sermon went for an hour. Um, that's, that's okay. I don't blame you. Uh, it was just, a, there was a lot. Okay, there was a lot to get through. Um, uh, I was about to say this week will be shorter. I'm not, I'm not that naive, but, but, but it is the plan. All right, so, so in verse 28 to 30, I can't pick a, a verse um, a key verse from that because it all hangs together. So let me just reread that for you and, and sort of tease us up for this week. Um, we know, Paul says, that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, for those he foreknew. Remember, that's God loved us before the creation of the world. Before you did anything to deserve his love, he loved you. He foreloved you. Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the big idea. That's God's plan for you, more and more like Jesus. Conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters adopted into God's family. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. That is, he made them legally forgiven legally righteous legally innocent he justified and those he justified he also glorified something that happens in the future but that paul speaks about in the past tense because it is a done deal you will be made new glorified recreated made to be everything you are always meant to be And so he says, what shall we say? What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Here's the objective that Paul has from 5 through to 8, chapter 5 through to 8, and specifically, very specifically, the rest of this chapter that we're going to look at today and next week. His objective is that you experience a great deal of security when it comes to your standing before God. He wants you to have absolute assurance of God's favor and his love. He wants you to know that God is for you, not against you, but for you. And he speaks really into the very recesses of our hearts when he, when he wants to minister this to us. He, he knows the depths of the fear that we have when it comes to our own standing before God. The level of insecurity that we experience when we do an audit of our spiritual lives. My hero, John Stott, said, insecurity is written across all human experience. 
insecurity is written across all human experience. Doesn't matter who you are, how much money you have, how much people think of you. Insecurity is written across all human experience. And he wrote that before Instagram. Social media, the great insecurity magnifier. It's written across all human experience. No matter who you are, you feel this level of insecurity from the, from the child who is dropped off at kindergarten for the first day. That separation anxiety where you, 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 your brain isn't developed enough to know that when someone's not there, they still exist, right? Maybe this isn't kindergarten. Maybe this is just infancy, right? If mum leaves the room, then I don't know if she's alive anymore. That separation anxiety never leaves us. And many of us frequently, if not constantly, project it onto God. Is he actually there? Is he actually for me? Does he actually care about me? Paul wants you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, the answer is yes. God is there, he loves you, and he is for you. If God is for us, who is against us? This is a rhetorical device, a kind of comparative rhetorical device that Paul loves to use. It's like a, an if-then, if-then, right? He did this in, in uh, I think it's in verse 18. Uh, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us, right? Comparative, so what you're going through now is dreadful, but compared to the glory that will be revealed in the new creation, it's nothing. He's doing the same thing here. What are then we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Well, the answer is everyone. It feels like sometimes. Everything, actually. Who is against me? Like, how long have you got? Satan, sickness, sin, all the S's. He goes on, we'll see next week in, in 30, verse 35, he lists all these things that threaten to separate us from God's love. Affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. The list goes on. Who is against us? Well, frankly, everyone. But if God is for us, then nothing can threaten his plans and purposes for us. All the things that he's been talking about, our adoption, our acquittal, our glorious destiny, none of these things can be threatened by anything that's against us. In order for these things, the most important things to us, in order for them to be threatened, then God would need to be threatened. In order for God's plans for you to be conquered, God would have to be conquered. That's why it says, if God is for us, who's against us? If God is with you, if God is for you, then nothing can threaten you. My first two days of year eight, uh, sorry, my first two days of year seven were 
two very different days for a very particular reason. I went to a new school. I went from um, Diamond Creek Primary School with about 11 people, no, about 200 people, to Cary Baptist Grammar School. And uh, even though I went for the first year, I went to the Donvale campus, which was much smaller than the massive big Q one that I ended up at, it was still an enormous change for me going to this school where you've got to wear a tie and pull your socks up and there's like a million people. And the worst thing was a lot of those kids had been there through primary school and were just carrying on. And I was just completely just, at, you know, pulled out of the sticks and put in this school. And I remember the first day si- sitting down with this one other guy who had no friends, sitting down with him outside the library, just wishing that none of this had ever happened. This was a terrible mistake. And along came this guy, uh, along came this guy who was like every American high school movie you've ever seen, the bully in that movie, that was this guy. And his name was Ben. Ben the bully, right? And he came along and he just, it was just like a couple of little lambs to the slaughter. He just laid into us with the most, like, honestly, terrible bullying started out with I was from he knew I was from he knew my brother so he knew I was from the sticks and knew that I you know whatever got up to out there and then and but then he moved on and he even got to the point where he was he was teasing me about the fact that my mum had died like that's pretty that's pretty bad that's pretty bad and I I was just sitting there doing all I could not to cry because that that just would have completed the picture would just would have it it would have destroyed me forever I don't think I cried but I wanted to I also wanted to beat him senseless but I was about three foot eight and I weighed about the same as a half a head of celery and, and I could do nothing that afternoon as I was about to make my way home on the bus I was waiting for the, the, bu- the bus to come around and just thinking, you know, the best thing that could happen now is if the bus just didn't stop and ran me over, all right? That's how I was feeling, just at the, at the, at the bottom. And I got onto the bus and I sat down next to this guy who I just assumed was a year 12. Um, and it turns out, no, he was in my year and he was from Sweden. His name was Martin Lundgren. His dad worked for Saab Skenya. And he was the kind of, like, he was the kind of year seven who, by this time it's about 4.30, he already had a five o'clock shadow. You know, it was weird. <laughs> Maybe it was just me. But I was, I was, you know, I was half his height, a third of his weight, and he was just this, um, this giant Viking. Anyway, we got to talking, and we kind of just became instant best friends. And uh, to the day that he went back to Sweden, like a year later, we were best buds. And so the next day I turned up to school and feel, feeling a little bit better about myself. And at lunchtime I went back to outside the library and uh, sat with the, the guy that didn't have any friends. But we also had Martin Lundgren sitting with us. And... and and the exact same thing happened again. Ben, the bully, comes around and 
he starts giving me the same serve that he gave the day before. And then he noticed Dolph Lundgren sitting next to me. That's a Rocky reference, if you didn't catch that. And suddenly he kind of shriveled up. Suddenly he, he didn't have so much to say anymore. The difference between those two days was, had nothing to do with me. I didn't go home and like do 100,000 push-ups and suddenly get really strong. I didn't have any kind of witty comebacks or, or anything that you would write into your own movie. I didn't have anything more that would kind of dissuade him from destroying me. The, the, the threat was still there. The difference was who was with me. That's Paul's point. If God is for you, if God is with you, if God is your daddy, if you're a son of the most high God, then who can be against you? Answer, everybody, but who cares? There's no threat. When it comes to his plans and his purposes for you, there is no threat. He has no rival. Paul wants you this morning, he wants me this morning to know the depth of the security that we really have. Not something that needs to be contrived. This is truth. This is the reality. Your security is in God's hands. So you might say, how can, how can I be assured that God is for me? Right? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's fine. But how can I be sure that he is? How can I know that he is for me? Paul's answer is verse 32. He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? That's his answer. How can I know that God is for me? He gave his own son. How can I be sure that God's not holding anything back from me? He gave his own son. This is another like, comparative thing, right? If, if God has given you his own son, how is, how is he then going to turn around and say, oh, I, don't, I just don't know about this guy. Not sure I have the patience for him. Not sure I had the wherewithal to get him into the new creation. No, God didn't spare his own son. Like the most precious thing in the universe was not spared, was not saved, was sacrificed. And if that's true, What's going to make us believe that he's not going to give us everything? There are some prosperity preachers who, I use the term preacher, they stand up the front and talk. They pretend that they speak from their Bible. And here's what they'll do. They'll take this verse and say, see, God wants you to have everything. He's not going to hold anything back. So that's going to be, you know, good looks and, and good health and good bank balance and Fast cars and whatever you want. 
I think Paul would just hear them and he would vomit a bit in his mouth and then he'd say, why are you cheapening what I've said? Why are you taking gospel gold and trying to turn it into toys? This is, this is, God, like, you're aiming way too low. Oh, you got, you want a car that depreciates by half in the first year and ends up in the dump in 50. God is giving you all things. He's giving you the new creation. He's making you co-heirs with Christ. Everything that Jesus has coming to him, you have coming to you. Don't cheapen this. Everything he's been talking about, God's favor, his adoption, his forgiveness, his justification, glorification, sanctification, his very spirit, he's giving you these things. Don't cheapen it with that crap. There are so many ways that we cheapen this message. When it comes to our security, our assurance, we do the same thing. We do. Let me just ask you the question. When you you need affirmation, when you feel insecure, what do you do? Where, Where do you go? I have a need. I have a need for Security. I have a need for affirmation. I have a need for assurance. Where do you go? That'll tell you a lot about to what degree you understand and have imbibed this gospel message. I think for most of us, we go to the, the cheap, we go to the, the cheap and nasty um, imitation of affirmation. We go to retail therapy, right? We even turned it into a therapy. Like if I can just buy something new, I will feel better about myself. Or we go to social media. If I just see enough of those like, if, I, if, I, if that little red circle fills up with numbers and, and people like and people, pe- people love and, 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 and people affirm me online, then I will, I will, I will feel more secure. I'll feel better about myself. Or we go to our spouse. You sanctify this because, well, I'm married to them, and so I, you know it's it's right for me to depend on them. But but when we do that, we turn them into something that they were never meant to be. We ask from them a level of assurance and reassurance that only God can give. Some of us, God help us, some of us go to our appearance. Like if I can just get myself looking good enough, then I will feel better about myself. That, I tell you what, I tell you for a fact, as a 40-year-old, that is a losing battle, all right? You, like, you, you're going to have to give that up at some point. And so we cheapen this. We, we, go, we go to these exterior things. We go to these plastic things. We go to these, these, these crude imitations of, of the assurance that God actually has for us, the, the gospel gold that God wants to pour out on us, we, and we go to these other things. And they can never do what we want them to. Where does Paul go when he wants to reassure you? He can see you feel insecure. He wants to reassure you. Where does he go? Verse 32, he did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him together, together with him grant us all things? 
everything. He goes to the gospel. That's the answer. He goes to the gospel. And this is what every single one of us, and I tell you, this is my one big idea, all right? If this is the only thing you talk about in discussion groups, the only thing that you take away. Have this in your mind. The, 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 every single one of us in our church needs to become a preacher. Every single one of us needs to become a gospel preacher. And the audience we need to have for our gospel sermons is ourself. You need to develop the habit. I really mean this. You need to develop the habit of preaching the gospel to yourself. It doesn't need to be an hour-long thing. It can be one sentence. When you get up in the morning and have to face that thing again that you can't bear, or you, look at, you get in the morning, you, you, you look at yourself in the mirror and you're disappointed, or whatever triggers your insecurity, you, you, you reflect on the past week of sin and recognize that you should be condemned forever for it. Whenever you come up against accusation or condemnation, you need to be able to, by, kind of by, by habit, by instinct, by reflex, preach the gospel to yourself. That's what Paul does here. He's got nothing else. He doesn't say, well, just, you know, you're really awesome. You, you, God's given you a gold star. He doesn't do that. He doesn't give you like a 10-point plan for building your self-esteem. He doesn't. He just gives you the gospel, which he knows is dynamite when it comes to destroying insecurity, when it comes to building assurance. We all need to become preachers. If you haven't started yet, start today. Now we're about to see that the thing that threatens assurance, threatens security in God's work and God's love, the thing that threatens it most, namely accusation and condemnation. I just want to, just to show you, this is how in Revelation 12, this is how the believers overcome Satan, who is literally like nominally the accuser that is nominally that means that's his name the accuser this is how the believers in revelation 12 overcome him the apostle john says then i heard a loud voice in heaven saying the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our god and the authority of his christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. Now look at this. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's all I'm saying. That's what you need to do daily. You hear the voice of the accuser and he's got some good points how good is his recall for all of the crap that you've done this past week? Amazing. It's like he's got photographic memory. And his accusations land. Boom. You feel them rip into you. And threaten your assurance that God loves you and he's for you. You respond 
by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. That is, you take the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and you preach it. Testify. You preach it to yourself. You have a couple of sermons ready to preach to brothers and sisters who are struggling. So let's go. Accusation, condemnation. Verse 33, here's the accusation stuff. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who will accuse you, friends? Brothers, sisters, family of God, who will accuse you? Again, all kinds of people. Who's going to accuse you? Satan. As, I, as we've seen, he's the accuser. He's called that for a reason. It's like his full-time job. Accusation. Satan's going to accuse you. The world's going to accuse you. The world around you is going to accuse you. They're going to accuse you of being a hypocrite. You, know, you say you're a Christian and then you behave like this. The world around you will accuse you. The church will accuse you. Brothers and sisters from within as well as people from without. People in the church will harm you and hurt you. Satan, the world, the church, yourself. If anyone's going to accuse you more than Satan does, it's probably you. You'd labor yourself the accuser. Some of us have trained ourselves through use and abuse to be our own little accuser, constant in accusation. Satan's going to accuse you. That's his job. The world's going to accuse you. The church is going to accuse you. You're going to accuse you. You know the only one who won't accuse you? God. The only one who has any right is the only one who will never do it. so fascinating you see this in the in the in the little beautiful little interaction between Jesus and the woman caught in adultery everyone around her wants to accuse her condemn her and throw stones at her until she dies and she is absolutely guilty caught in the act of adultery the reason that Jesus is able to silence them is he just points out their own hypocrisy they can't accuse her. They should be accusing themselves. The only one who can accuse and condemn her is the one who sets her free. Neither do I condemn you. Everyone's going to accuse us except the only one who can actually do it. How can we be certain that God won't accuse us? Because he's already said that you've been justified. Verse 29 to 30. This has already been decided. You've been justified. That is, in the legal court, the only legal court that counts, 
not the legal court of public opinion or social media opinion or any other opinion, the only court that counts, the court of heaven. In that courtroom, the judge has looked at you and said, not guilty, justified. Everything that was owing to you, all of that condemnation, all of that that judgment and punishment has been placed on the Son. He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. And therefore now God looks at you and sees the beauty, the majesty, the innocence of his Son. And so there are no accusations that can be formed. They don't exist. God will never accuse you. Paul silences accusation with the gospel. Now go and do likewise. What about condemnation? That's the, the, that was the left jab. Here's the right hook. Here's, here's condemnation, verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. That's your answer. Who's going to condemn you? Here's four reasons why no one ever will. Four reasons. Right there in verse 34. Number one, Christ died for us and paid the full price for our sin. What's left owing on your account? Nothing. The death of the Son of God is so supreme, so sufficient that there is nothing owing on your account, nothing to condemn you, nothing to bankrupt you, nothing owing, paid in full. Christ died for us and paid the full price for our sin. Number two, he was raised again, proving his death was sufficient. So Christ dies and stays in the ground. His bones are in Jerusalem. It's meaningless. It's just a good guy who, you know, gave himself for us. Meaningless. But the fact that he was raised again, ascending to the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over all things, that is God's stamp, his guarantee that Christ's death was sufficient. He was vindicated. He was raised again proving his death was sufficient. Number three, he is seated in power at God's right hand. Whatever Jesus says, goes. He's limitless in power. He is without rival in the universe. Oh, the the accuser is chatting to you this morning. And God laughs. From his throne, the psalmist says. He looks down on his enemies and has a chuckle. It's funny looking at them threatening him with their Lego swords. It's funny. He is seated in power at God's right hand. Nothing is beyond him and no one is beyond his grasp. Number four, he now intercedes for his people, applying his finished work. 
Those four things, let me read, reread verse 34 to show you them again. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. So let me just stick for a minute because I think most of us are fairly well acquainted with those first three things. Let me just expand a little bit on the fourth one that we're less familiar with, okay? So what is Jesus doing right now? Not what did he do in his ministry on earth, not what did he do on the cross and his subsequent resurrection, not what happened when he ascended to the right hand of God, but what is he doing now? That's what that fourth point describes. It describes his present ministry of intercession. And this intercession is a a specific ministry that Jesus has a specific ministry of applying his final work, his full, sufficient, once-for-all sacrifice, applying that to you constantly. That's his present work of intercession. The right hand of God, he is looking at you and constantly applying and reapplying his finished work. He's not adding anything to it. It was full and final when it happened but he's constantly reapplying it to you. I really love the way that Dane Ortland describes this ministry in his book, Gentle and Lowly. Little, small, beautiful book uh, that you should definitely read. Let me just give you a, a few, I've got four quotes here on the intercession of Christ. He says, Christ's intercession is the constant hitting refresh of our justification in the court of heaven. Constantly refreshing, constantly reapplying his finished work. Next. Christ continues to intercede on our behalf in heaven because we continue to fail here on earth. He does not forgive us through his work on the cross and then hope we make it the rest of the way. He's constantly reapplying, constantly persevering your faith in his finished work. One way to think of Christ's intercession then is simply this. Jesus, wait, just back up one more. Jesus is praying for you right now. Can you hear him? Imagine that if we could. (laughs) Jesus is praying for you right now. Whereas the doctrine of the atonement reassures us with what Christ has done in the past, the doctrine of his intercession reassures us with what he is doing in the present, right now, even as we speak. And finally, our sinning goes to the uttermost. That is, we are going to continue to sin to the day we die, and probably as we are dying. Our sin goes to the uttermost, but his saving goes to the uttermost. And his saving is always outpaces and overwhelms our sinning because he always lives to intercede for us. Quoting Hebrews, I think it's chapter 7. His intercession always outpaces our sinning. So who's going to condemn you? People are going to try. Same list of suspects. 
but Jesus' finished work and his present intercession absolutely guarantee that you won't be condemned. You need to know this, guys. I, I don't want to belabor it, but we, we just, we, and when I say you, I mean me. We need to know. That, can we get those four things back up on the screen? These four things you need to have at your fingertips, at your, your heart tips, at your mind tips, right? You need to have these on hand. When the accusation comes, when the condemnation comes, when it comes five minutes after the sermon and you can't remember a word of what I said. For me, it's Monday morning, crushing condemnation that everything yesterday was useless, right? When that comes, you need to have these four ironclad reasons for hope on the tip of your tongue. You need to be preaching them to your own heart. And in order for that to happen, you're going to have to do some work. All right? Christianity is work. You don't work for your salvation, but all of your faith is worked out through work. It's going to take effort. Part of the effort is memorizing these things. You know, I used to go and watch my kids do karate back when they did karate. Judah was never really into it. India was like elite. And she... Yeah, she was just really good at karate. And I remember seeing her, part of, I don't know, I, I don't know anything about anything, all right? But I don't know what this is called, so whatever, Google it. But there's this thing that the kids do where um, they're going to come up for a grading and they might get a better belt. Um, and they've got to do this thing where they memorize all these movements. Like, you got to, it, it, it's like a dance. And they're all movements of karate and 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 the idea is that if you memorize these movements then you can go into sort of a a a combat situation and have memorized what you do in response to whatever comes at you that's just that's all i'm talking about you need to cognitively not just cognitively like with your your with your whole being head, heart, hands, right? With, with everything that you have, with your soul, you need to go through those movements. It could be the four that I've outlined. It could just, whatever gospel sermon you think will preach to you in those moments, you need to have it so that when the attack comes, you know what to do. You don't go running off to social media to make you feel better. Or whatever it is, Dan Murphy's, God's sakes. I think you get the point. So who is against us, brothers and sisters? Who can accuse us? Who can condemn us? Everyone and everything, but who cares? Nothing can threaten us. Nothing can overcome God's purposes for us we've focused today on the work of christ and how it gives us assurance next week we're going to focus on the love of christ and how it does the same so let me pray what then are we to say about these things if god is for us 
who is against us? Lord God, you did not even spare your own son, but offered him up for us all. And so we trust that you will, together with him, give us all things. We believe and we testify that no plan of yours can be thwarted, that no enemy of ours can prevail. We stand as those who can have absolute assurance of your love and security in your promises. Please, Lord, take us now and, and really over the next week, please drill us in being gospel preachers. Help us, Lord, to get into the habit of preaching the gospel to ourselves and to those around us. I pray that you'd bless us during this, this time of discussion. Lord, one of the, uh, yeah, this will be the last time we have these discussion groups. Um, use that time, Lord. Ground this, all of this in, the, in that, that time of discussion. Encourage us, strengthen us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.